right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F that. We don't got time for that. All right, let's go. Break it. Break it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Nick Springer on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson with Nick Springer. Hello. We're brought to you by 23rd Street Brewery, and on today's show, we're going to talk about why KU basketball only won by eight in a game that they were favored by 38 against Eastern Illinois. We will uh, also talk a little KU football today. We got some KU basketball audio. Uh, Ray Bouchard, head coach for the KU volleyball team, is going to join us at 340. Henry Greenstein of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, is going to join us at about 4.30. And we have a KU mailbag coming at you in the 4 o'clock hour. So get any last-second questions in now at RCST1320 on Twitter, where we're doing our KU UConn ticket giveaway, or uh, email us, RCST1320AM at KU.com. Who giveaway? KU UConn. 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 How do they win, Derek? You just retweet it and be following the account. It's that simple. Wow. Yeah. Really simple. And then we'll pick a random person. Wow, that's so simple. It is. So wow. simple. Incredible. Even Nick could figure it out. <laughs> yes. Hey, no numbers no numbers involved. So that's huge for me. Uh in a way, yeah. I mean there's numbers of people. Well, but I don't have to think about any numbers. I'm gonna make I just you click determine who the winner is with a math equation. What? How about that? No, no, no. You normally you just tell me to pick a number. <laughs> yeah, but I'm gonna tell you to pick a number between a certain range divided by a math equation. That's, that's, and brackets. Well, then you're not going to get a winner because <laughs> I'm not going to be able to give you a number. Uh, that Last night at times it felt like KU might not be a winner, but they found <laughs> a way to pull through 71-63 to 63 final score there. Uh, you know, one hand, hey, you won the game, move on, deal with it, right? Yep. Maybe it was a look-ahead game. Yep. Um, you've had other games in the past. You know, usually there's one or two of them a year where you win a game that – is a lot closer than it should be. So at least you won the game. That's uh, I, mean, I guess listen, one positive. You brought up Southern Utah last year. This was yeah. Southern Utah squared. Yeah, and I, I said yesterday I thought that if you had Southern Utah game last year, you would still win by fifteen. That didn't end up being the case, but I think that's kind of what this was. Just kind of a bleh performance. And and honestly, like it, it wasn't even trending that way. The weird part about it, if you would have said that they were going to have a chance of winning this thing, Eastern Illinois, you would have probably thought they would have had a hotter, hotter start than they did. They were down 13 at half, and that was yeah. after that, that crazy, weird three-point play at the end of the first half where it yeah. was like, okay. And KU got up pretty early. They got up to a fast start to start yeah. the game. And you would have thought they would have been fine, but then the, the beginning of the second half where they went on a 15-2 to run, like that quickly uh, changed things a little yeah. bit, I think, to say the least. The old Allen Fieldhouse run except Eastern Illinois. For the other team. <laughs> Well, I'd imagine, too, it's like it uh, probably kind of lethargic. I mean, I remember sitting there at halftime being like, all right, this is a bit of a snoozer, but, you know, they're just rolling through. <laughs> yeah. Turned out not to be a snoozer in the end <laughs> in uh, a lot of weird ways. I guess Eastern Illinois last year, too, was like a 30-something point underdog to Iowa, and they won the game. Oh. So there's something about them that they're like, you don't want to play them if they're a 30-point underdog. You know, they, they turn <laughs> into a, uh, a real good basketball team. <laughs> so I, I think uh, the majority of KU fans after that game – 
that you saw being outspoken on social media and, and stuff, it was what is going on with this team? What is wrong with this team? And I think there were different levels of it was almost like arguments of people arguing, no, this is what's wrong with the team. No, this is what's wrong with the team, which is uh, not the best place to be in. I'll sit True. here and say that, well, if they beat UConn on Friday, nobody's going to even care about oh, what exactly. happened on Tuesday. You won yeah, the game. Exactly. Uh, Dude, I, I think that's part what, of winning yeah. ugly. Winning. Sure, and and I do think there is a, a dichotomy between if you continue to win like that against lesser opponents, it probably indicates you are not as good as you think you are. But as long as it's an exception to the rule, as long as it's a once every now and then, as yep. long as it's a, okay, you know, that happened, you moved on from it, you won your more important games, it's fine. Uh, so I guess basically from here, how we view this game, I think is going to be more reactionary based on what happens moving forward. Like I said, if you beat UConn, this game is just blown by. Yeah, if you lose to UConn, we're going to start using this game lumped in with the UConn game, lumped in with other games that things have not gone well Could be as a combined data point, right? So it just kind of depends what you do from here. I, I think that uh, there, there's an old uh, – did you ever watch uh, Family Guy? You yeah. Know, back in the day, it was yeah. one of the first seasons. I like Family Guy, yeah. They had a, a skit where – or a, I don't know, skit, probably wrong word, whatever. A scene where like Peter's falling and Spider-Man – Comes out yeah. of nowhere and you get shoots one. web. Yeah, you get one. So he said, everybody gets everybody one. gets one. Tell him, Peter. Everybody gets one. Everybody gets one. Okay, that's how I feel about this <laughs> as a college basketball team against lesser opponents that year. And and lesser opponent can be a a very vague term because what am I talking about? Am I talking like I I don't consider any of the Big Twelve teams. You know, like when I'm saying the lesser lesser opponents, it, it means non Power Five. I think right. That, I'm saying like least. the Manhattans, the NC Centrals, this one probably the UMKC game later. Yale. Um, Oh, wait, no, wait, wait, no, did I say that out loud? Not did Yale. I say Yale. Not Yale. <laughs> My bad. I didn't no. mean, that one slipped out. That no, was a like slip these, of the tongue. The Chaminade game. Those are games where you get one. You get one game where you let them be closer than you probably should be. Yeah. And as long as you win the game, I think you don't get one. If you lose the game, then it becomes a different conversation. But, like, let's go back in recent history, okay? Last season, I mentioned the Southern Utah game. Okay, Southern Utah, you only beat them by six points. For, and people forget the Southern Utah game. That was that was the game that I was in attendance for. And if if KU had lost, I would have had to have, I would have had to abandon myself yeah, now. Fieldhouse field forever. House. You really would have. <laughs> uh, go back to the 2022 season. That team obviously ended up winning the national title. Stephen F. Austin. That was the game. Remy Martin had to hit a three with like the final minute of the game, right? Yeah. Uh, to kind of clinch it away, he ended up winning by eight. Now, as I'm going through this, Southern Utah 110th on Ken Palm. Stephen, Stephen F. Austin, Austin was 123rd. Team, right? They might have been uh, with Latrell Giselle. So, uh, you know, they were 123rd. Um, you go back to the 2021 season and uh, against um, North Dakota State, who finished 139th oh, at Ken Palm that year. They beat them by four. I think Tyon Grant Foster had a big finish to the game. Yeah. Hey, uh, 2020. That's, hey, that's Grand Canyon University legend, Tyon Grant yeah. Foster, to you. 2020, they didn't really mess around with anyone. That team was just, nobody could stop Doak. So it's just like, you know, it didn't really matter. Uh, 2019. You had the uh, New Mexico State game that was at uh, the T-Mobile. I, I don't know if it was the Sprint Center or the T-Mobile Center at the time. Whatever it was. Uh, you only beat them by three. Okay, so there's that one in 2019. You go back to uh, 2018. Um, let's see. I don't know if there's one for this year. I mean, I guess you could say the Washington game, who was not a very good team that year in the Sprint Center. Hey, you know who was at that game? Hmm. Me. So, you, yes, here we go. This is the uh, Nick Springer curse here. So I mean, I, I, I dude, I had an incredible run from like late 2017 through 2019. Every KU loss, I was there. 
It's incredible. So there's not a lot of home ones and stuff. So, I mean, point being, there, there are plenty of other games that you can point to, and this has happened to KU, and they've been fine in some respects. Now, we haven't seen it to the level of this one. Usually, like I said, a lot of those teams were mid-major teams. You expected them to win by a lot. They ended up winning close, but they were maybe in the hundreds on Ken Palm. Eastern Illinois, very different conversation because I, I wonder what they are now in Ken Palm. They oh, they're, they're 328. Them, right? They're 328. Okay, so, so they moved up like 20 spots. So they moved up 20 spots. spots to losing by eight. I love that. Because um, they were, they were what? I think they were 344. Four, 346, somewhere yeah, in the range. So like 18, 16, 18 spots. Yeah. So that's what makes this different because this is literally one of the bottom 25 teams yes. in the country. Like this wouldn't have been equivalent to KU losing to a 16 seed. This would have been equivalent of a 16 seed losing by 15 to another school, you know? <laughs> So that's not great, but again, it only becomes a problem if it keeps happening. If this is a blip in the radar, it's fine. Yeah, and to your point, look ahead game with UConn coming to town. Coming off of three games in three days over a holiday weekend. Like there are plenty of ways you could reasonably, you know, mentally gymnastics yourself into thinking this is gonna be a one off or this is a one off. But uh, you know, for the time being, it's it's a it's a game where you come away from it not feeling very excited or happy, you know. Uh, I mean, you got the win, obviously, but but yeah, I, we'll see. I mean, I I there are definitely a lot of things that are concerning from it, certainly, and I, I don't know. But to your point, I think I think you're absolutely right. It hit the nail right on the head with the idea of the way that you look at this game is actually going to be more reflected upon how KU does in their next upcoming games. If they lose a tight game to UConn, maybe it's not that big of a deal. If they get blown up by UConn, maybe it's like, whoa, whoa. You know, and then you play UMKC. What if the same thing happens with UMKC, where you kind of screw around and it's a close game? Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, you're, now your eyebrows are really raised. You're thinking, hey, 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 hey. You know? So it, it will, I do think it will depend kind of on what happens going forward because – but this is a game where I think also it's easy. It'll be it should be easy for KU to flush it out. Just be like, you know what? It's done. Got the win. Who cares? Burn the tape. Don't even think about it. We're on to UConn. Now, as far as what happened in the game that led to it being a lot closer than you would have expected, I do think there are some takeaways you could have that are worrisome. Because we've talked a lot about the three-point shooting. Talked a lot about it all offseason. Talked a lot about it in the exhibition games because it was a problem. First two games happened. It was not a problem. It was a strength. It went bonkers from three in the first two games. But since that point, three-point shooting has kind of fallen apart. And this game was no different. Three of 14 from three-point range. Free throw shooting stayed a problem. Shot 67% on free throws, which uh, is kind of where you're at on the season. Rebounding became a problem in this game. I think uh, the rebounding had been a problem on the offensive end. This was one of the first games where it was a problem on the defensive end, too. So it's just a lot of little things that you kind of add up. I, I guess on a positive note, they they forced some turnovers, got some steals. They stayed dominant on the inside. Like, two-point percentage offense, great. Two-point percentage defense, great. They shot better from three than they did from two. You had 11 blocks on the inside. So, like, yeah. there's certain things to take away positively. But um, certainly some negatives that are season-long worries, I would say. I would also say I, I didn't think the bench played bad, but I also do not feel like you – moved any closer to figuring out your rotation five through nine. No. Yeah. The the the, the bench was uh, it was there. It was a thing. It existed. But yeah, they, they didn't really do anything to really inspire you. And 
Jamar McDowell ended up only playing eight minutes after uh, certain people suggested he might play more. Certain people who are clearly not very intelligent or very smart. Those people will remain nameless. <laughs> but if you listen to the show yesterday, that will give you a one in two chance of guessing who those people were. <laughs> so that was not very good. Uh, the other funny thing is, so remember we we had that we had that we did that exercise a couple times over the course of the offseason and in the preseason about well if KU shoots twenty threes per game or whatever like they did last season who's going to shoot them? Well, how stupid were we? The answer is they're just not going to shoot that many threes because they suck. They're just only going to shoot fourteen a game instead of twenty because they're bad. So uh, yeah, the, the shooting situation I, I I don't know. I mean Nick Timberlake airballs his first three. He did make another one though, which was good. Uh, and Marco Jackson made one, which was nice. After he badly missed a couple as well, uh, Jamar McDowell badly missed. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know, man. I, I kind of I I mentioned this. I think uh, maybe after the Illinois game or sometime around there, where I kind of feel like with the three point shooting, it, it it is what it is. It's going to be inconsistent at best. I think over the course of the season, period. I think that's just how it's going to be. And I think you just have to accept that. You just have to accept that it, it, that's what it's going to be. I think it's going to be inconsistent at best. At worst, it's going to be bad, really bad, like it was against Eastern Illinois, which then that's that one is going to cause you some problems probably, especially once you get to conference play. So uh, that's that was kind of a big takeaway is, is just more confirmation of I think the three-point shooting is, is going to be inconsistent at best. It's not going to be something you can rely on to, to help you out. And it just puts more pressure, I think, on KU to continue to be dominant in the two-point shooting with Hunter Dickinson, which they've shown they can be, but that in and of itself alone is not going to be enough for you to win games, right? You're going to have to do other stuff well. You're going to have to either rebound really well. You're going to have to either make free throws really well. There's other or force a lot of turnovers. There's, there's other things that you're going to have to do well besides just shooting well from two. In the modern, in the like in the modern game, shooting well from two is it's not in and of itself good enough to win against quality opponents. Period. Mm-hmm. That's just how that's just how it is in the modern game. You have to be doing you have to be doing other things well on top of that. And so uh, that's kind of the issue that I think KU faces right now is they haven't really shown to be consistently good at some of that other stuff. They've had a, some big problems with turnovers. They've had problems with rebounding. Besides Hunter Dickinson, nobody's rebounding. Obviously, the shooting, as I alluded to, was inconsistent at best. They're not for, they haven't really had been forcing a ton of turnovers necessarily. So they, they gotta figure out if you're inconsistent if your shooting is gonna be inconsistent at best, you, you need to make sure that you're at a high level in other areas. And besides the two point efficiency with Hunter Dickinson, that just hasn't been the case. And Hunter Dickinson, listen, he's gonna meet his match against against Klingon on Friday. So if if that negatively impacts his two point efficiency in that game, and suddenly the one thing that you have been great at so far this season, you're not that great at, now there's more stress on you doing well in other areas that you haven't shown to do that regularly in the first eight games of the season. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing some early like scouting work on, on UConn today, kind of taking a look at their team, and I'll say this, like there are not a lot of holes in that roster or in that team of anything they have really done poorly so far this season. So um, this would be a big opportunity. I... I I don't know. UConn's really good, so we'll we'll see. Kansas has to play, obviously, a much cleaner game. Now, I did see this uh, kind of debate emerging last night. KU's offense, KU's defense. I saw some people uh, saying that they were more worried about KU's defense because there were times that they gave up, you know, easy driving lanes to the hole or they gave up a wide-open three. They were worried more about the defense. 
Are you worried more about the defense or the offense long term? Honestly, given kind of what I just mentioned with the three-point shooting, I would maybe be more, more worried about the defense. Because if you're an inconsistent shooting, if you're an inconsistent shooting team and you're struggling in that area, that means you got to be playing good defense. And if you're not doing that, that's So what you're hard. basically saying is you think the offense I, l- might be worse, but because of that, the defense has to basically yes. be elite I, perfect, I, I, right? Yeah, what I, everything so if you're I, not I mean, that Basically, I have resigned myself to the fact that, that they're this not, is not shoot. going to be a great three-point shooting team. So you have to do other team. things well. Correct. Yes. I have resigned myself to the fact that this is not going to be a great three-point shooting team. It is not going to be a team that you can reliably expect to shoot well night in and night out from three. And so because of that, yes, exactly. I think that at that point, again, if you're just going to be a good good from two, you need to be doing other stuff well, i.e. defense, rebounding, free throw shooting, that kind of stuff. So, yes, I think maybe I would make the argument at that point I'd be a little bit more concerned about the defense. Because if if you just accept which what I just said, if you just accept the fact that three-point shooting is going to be inconsistent and not reliable – suddenly then there's more pressure on the defense to, to play at a high level. And on top of that, think about the expectations for this team defensively. Kevin McCorn and DeWan Harris are two of the top defenders in the country, we think. Or we have we have data from previous years that shows that they, they generally have been. You add in Hunter Dickinson. This, there's no reason this shouldn't be a good defensive team. Period. I think that's a good way to put it because – if you are just having the discussion about what is what is I guess worse, it has to be the offense in my opinion because right now you look at it on Ken Palm, KU is thirty first in offense. They are fourth on defense. This would right now if if Kansas finished thirty first in offense, that would be the fourth worst offense of the Bill Self era. Now part of that speaks to how ridiculous Bill Self has been. Say, that's just insane. Like, if you're saying that was your fourth worst, like most teams would kill to have the 31st ranked offense. So you know it's it, it's a good problem to have, but it it is not, especially when you have the dominant big man that usually makes the offense go right. For them to have the fourth worst offense right now in the Bill Self era shows you those other struggles. It's the lack of spacing. It's the lack of shooting. You saw them packing the paint. It's the lack of getting offensive rebounds. It's turning it over too much. It's the lack of free throw shooting. That stuff all worries me. So I I, yeah. I do have worries about that, but I, I can get on board with what you're saying because I, I kind of agree with you. I think the rebounding is something that can get better as the season goes on. I think the free throw shooting can get better as the season sh- goes on. It, I'll, I'll say this. It should get better. We saw KJ go miles from the first couple weeks last year to being like really good the rest of the season. So like yeah. that could happen for the team. It should get better. I don't know how much better the three-point shooting is going to get. Yes. Right? I agree. 100%. And so to that notion, I think you're right. I think they just have to steer into being a rugged t- Like they have to be Tennessee. They have to be Tennessee. They have to be dominant at two-point shooting. They have to be physical and they have to be elite on defense. Yeah. Which by the way, they beat Tennessee at basically at their own game. So they, they can't get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, having a guy like Hunter Dickinson obviously makes it a lot easier to do some of that stuff. So they can't get to that level. And, and yeah, to your point, if you're if you're gonna be the thirtieth or the thirty first D offense in the country and you want to compete for a national title, you have to be top five in defense probably. Top ten at that point. I think that's right. Uh unless the three point shooting comes around, which maybe it could if you're counting on young players, maybe they just get better at it. But I, I don't I, know. Yeah, I, I, I like seen a lot. I've resigned myself to it being inconsistent at best. So again, I think there's probably gonna be some game sprinkle in there like the Kentucky game where they go fifty percent from three. 
But I think more often than not, you're going to see more games along the lines of Eastern Illinois or some of the games you saw in Maui. I think that's right. All right, we're going to take a timeout. Let's recap Rock Chalk Pickahawk. Also, the Big 12 Football Awards are out. KU well represented. We'll discuss that next. Ray Bouchard, Kansas volleyball head coach, joins us in about 15 minutes. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. Welcome back into Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. We're going to be joined by Ray Bouchard, coach for the KU volleyball team in about 10 minutes from right now. Uh, Rock Chalk Pickahawk recap from last night. Uh, I had Hunter Dickinson who scored 32 points. The rest is history. Basically, nobody else got a ton. KJ got two. Parker Brown got one. El Marco had negative one. And then Jankovic didn't play. So I wound up with 34 points. You had only three from Kevin McCuller this game, negative two from Dewan, one from Johnny Furphy, four from Jamari McDowell, and seven from Nick Timberlake. About- yeah, I mean, all things considered, you know, I put up 13 pickock points. That's not bad. No, it's really. not. We've seen worse. Just Hunter Dickinson <laughs> did Hunter Dickinson things. So I ended up winning 34 to 13. I am now up six to three. Uh, You're now up four to three. No. Six to three is the answer the final score that we're going for there uh the big 12 football awards came out earlier today about an hour ago yeah KU well represented some would say not well enough depending on how you want to argue certain awards uh so I I saw one well coach of the year went to Mike Gundy do you think Lance Leipold should have won that I can understand why they went yeah. with Mike Gundy to have the turnaround they did in season. See, but again, you're rewarding Mike Gundy for sucking right. early in the year. You're basically saying, "Wow, you suck." This was your own problem. Yes, exactly. So that's the issue that that's the issue that I have. He was the reason he won is because they got blasted by South Alabama. Is that like uh, Kirk Ferentz winning Coach of the Year in in the Big Ten this year? That it's like you created your own offensive problems. Exactly. Yes. You know? Yes. Hundred percent agree. So, yeah, I, I, I think Lance Eibold should have won it as, as an honor for what he has done for the KU football program. Yeah, because, I mean, besides Mike Gundy, I mean, you could have given it to Sark, I guess, just for Texas being Texas. But he sure. didn't do anything, you know, he didn't do anything special. I thought Brent Venables would have been a good pick if you wanted to. I mean, 10 wins after mm-hmm. they won six last year. But, again, you, you get rewarded for sucking. Yeah, yeah. I, no, like I said, I think Lance Eibold would have been my vote. Uh, offensive player of the year went to Ollie Gordon, which, you know, I'm fine. That, that guy's yeah. a stud. Kevin Neal did get a vote for it, though. Yeah. Defensive player of the year, Tavondre Sweat. Offensive newcomer of the year, A.D. Mitchell from Texas. Defensive newcomer of the year went to Austin Booker with Kansas. Bang. There we go. Offensive freshman of the year was Rocco Becht. And then the uh, defensive freshman of the year, Anthony Hill and Ben Roberts from Texas and Texas Tech. Special teams player of the year, Austin McNamara at Texas Tech. Offensive lineman of the year, Cooper Beebe. Dominic Pooney did receive a vote for that. Yeah. And Byron Murphy won defensive lineman of the year over there. Now, to the first team... Dylan Gabriel got quarterback. Uh, Ollie Gordon got running back. Taj Brooks got the second running back spot. And, like, if you look at the total yards, you can understand why Brooks is ahead of Neal. Um, I think Devin Neal is the better running back, but I can understand why he's not on the first team with those two guys. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I mean, remember, we had this conversation earlier in the year about, you know, coming into the year, it was a question of, well, you know, the Big 12 running backs might be kind of down this year. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you lose the guy, the kid from Baylor that he's gone Texas obviously lost Bijan, uh, you know, so the, a really, really good stable running backs. No more Deuce Vaughn either from Kansas State, and it kind of you kind of felt like maybe this year the running backs in the Big Twelve maybe wouldn't be as strong, and that ended up being totally off. I mean, Ollie Gordon is a Heisman candidate as he should be. Taj Brooks had a great year for Texas Tech. 
Uh, even a guy like DJ Giddens from Kansas State was really, really good. UCF had a pair of guys that were great, and obviously Devin Neal and Daniel Hyshaw as well. So the running back stables across the conference ended up being quite a bit better than maybe I had anticipated back in August. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, it's one of those situations where even though Devin Neal, I think, is better than Taj Brooks, Taj Brooks, as kind of more of a workhorse guy, really carried Texas Tech and, and carried their offense, and so I kind of get it. Yeah, so I, I I sort of get it. Like I said, I think Devin Neal is better, but it's not one of those things where I'm going to be like completely up in arms about it uh, necessarily. I, I think it's crazier that he wasn't semifinalist for the uh, Doak Walker. Fullback went to Ben Sinnott. Uh, the receivers were Javon Baker, Drake Stoop, Xavier Worthy. Tight ends were Jared Wiley from TCU and Jatavion Sanders for Texas. Um, offensive line, Dominic Pooney got on the first team, which I'm glad for because I've been championing that for, yeah. for a bit here. Yeah. Cooper Beebe from K-State, Patrick Paul from Houston, Kelvin Banks from Texas, and Zach Frazier from West Virginia, the punter and or the place kicker and kick returner, Burt Auburn and Xavier Worthy. Defense side of the ball uh, for Kansas, Austin Booker got on there, so that was really cool to see, along with uh, Traymon Morris-Brash at UCF, Nelson Caesar at Houston, Byron Murphy at Texas, Tavondre Sweat at Texas, Danny Stutzman at Oklahoma, Nicholas Martin at Oklahoma State, Jalen Ford at Texas. The DBs were Jeremiah Cooper, TJ Tampa, both at Iowa State, Billy Bowman at Oklahoma, Beanie Bishop Jr., great name at West Virginia, and Kobe Bryant got on there as another DB. Yeah. Uh, Kobe and... KU, some of their players seem a little upset that Melo Dotson didn't get up on there. Yeah, yeah. And so you had actually, so <laughs> Melo Dotson had, had night, some yeah. cryptic tweets, uh, basically. And uh, I think we have the answer to what that was about, probably. Well, he sent out like a picture of a, it's just a black circle, basically a black <laughs> ball, right? Uh, back in late October, basically, I would imagine. Well, I don't know. Bald, right? I, I don't know. Well, I mean, it was a black ball. I understand. You yes. heard the phrase being black uh, yes, before, right? I get, yes. Or basically, you were being screwed over. Yes, I get all that. But, I mean, also, it looked like a marble to me. So, like, it could have been anything. It could have been. But I'm wondering, did he not win, like, a Big 12 Defensive Player of the Week one of the weeks he had a pick six? Probably. And maybe that's what it was. Yeah, And then probably. he quote tweeted it and mentioned something else. And maybe he knew he wasn't. He quote tweeted it was basically like, I'm always right, or like I'm, yeah. or like I was right about this. That he got blackballed from from the. So I don't know. So many I mean, if you want to put on your, if you want to put on your goofy wide receiver <laughs> Twitter goggles and try to decode that one, good yeah. luck. So I'm wondering if that's what it was. But Devin Neal ended up being second team. Uh, by the way, I think for the second straight year. And then uh, Kenny Logan ended up being second team on the defensive side of the ball. I think well-deserved. I thought he had a really good year this year. Yeah. Uh, honorable mention picks, Lawrence Arnold. I think if, if he would have been in a less balanced offense, whether it was balanced with the amount of targets or with the guys um, or, or with the run pass stuff, he probably would have been first or second team. Jason Bean, cool to see he got honorable mention. Yeah, yeah I mean, if, if he would have been a starter for more games, he might have worked on to the second team. Who knows? Yeah. Austin Booker and uh, Dominic Pooney and Devin Neal got some like player of the year. Honorable mentions. Melo Dotson did get honorable mention. I thought he at least should have been second team, though, uh, going back to that conversation. Mason Fairchild, honorable mention. Again, I thought he would have been at least second team there. I would like to see Jared Casey get, like, second team fullback. And then Jeremy Robinson and Mike Nowitzki got uh, honorable mention nods as well. Anybody yeah, dude, you think got Who got the hell out? is Steve-O Klotz, the second what? team fullback for Iowa State? Oh, yeah, dude. I, who I don't is, know who, who is, is that? Steve-O Klotz? How is it not yeah, Jared is, Casey? Who is, that's, that's not, not a real, real guy. That's not real know, there's no way that they dude made played up a player. more than like They made a up a player. Yeah, that, yeah, no, that's, that's What are we real. doing? 
Um, I'm trying to think guys who I thought might have got snubbed from Kansas. I mean, you could argue Quentin Skinner deserved a honorable mention pick. Again, it's the same problem with him and Luke Grimm, where it's just like the, the totals, though, yeah. not as much. And then, you know, a guy like J.B. Brown, maybe just the playing time wasn't necessarily there for, yeah. to have the big enough impact. Yeah, but I, I think that it's pretty well o- represented. O.J. Burroughs? You know? Yeah, maybe. there somewhere? Maybe. Yeah, well, we'll see. All right, uh, more to talk about throughout the day, including with Ray Bouchard, Kansas volleyball coach, joins us next. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. Hey, it's Derek Johnson from Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. And despite sitting around in a studio all day, I feel loose and limber thanks to Massage Envy and their total body stretch service. If you have aches from a day at the office, working out, maybe a round of golf, Massage Envy can help. All you need to do is relax and breathe deep during the stretches, and they'll take it from there. It's great for your body and your mind. And they also have rapid tension services and advanced skin care. Massage Envy on 6th Street in Lawrence and 119th and Black Bob in Aletha. We're joined now by special guest Ray Bouchard, head coach for the KU women's volleyball team, and uh, action gets started in the NCAA tournament on Thursday. They're going to be the second game of the hosting that they're doing with Yale and Penn State coming in. They're playing Omaha in the later game at 7 o'clock. If they win that game, they play again on Friday at uh, 5.30 ahead of the KU-UConn game. So lots of action you can go to uh, later this week for KU fans. I guess starting there, though, the the tickets went up for sale. I forget if it was Monday or Tuesday this week uh, at noon, and within a minute they were already sold out. Uh, Coach, what does that say about the fan base, and and how, I guess, pleasant is that to hear for for you and the girls headed into the game to, to see that kind of support? Yeah, I guess. How does that even happen? Uh, <laughs> you sell all those tickets in a minute. Um, that's exciting. Um, uh, I'm not. I'm not totally surprised. We've just had such a great connection with this team and our fan base this year. Uh, we went through conference undefeated at home, which we haven't done in a, a long, long time. Um, so, I think. Uh, the, the volleyball enthusiasts in the area are excited about this group and the, at the level of volleyball that will be uh, visiting our region this week. Well, there was never really a, a rut or a big losing streak along the way this season for you guys or, or something that required you know players-only meeting or some crazy turnaround, I, I would imagine. But was there a moment or, or maybe a match this season, maybe a practice even, that you kind of felt like the team – did take things to the next level that they were ready to get to this point where now you're hosting again in the NCAA tournament? Yeah, I mean, we had a, uh, Derek, we had a, a really solid pre-conference. Uh, we had a close miss against Purdue. You know, they're a number three seed, and it was 17-15 in the fifth set. And we know there's some things we could have done there, but we turned right back around the next day or the day after and played a really good Marquette team. So, we felt like we belonged in discussion of good teams after that weekend. Uh, like you said, a lot of teams go through a week or two stretch where uh, things don't go well. I think for us, uh, a huge, a huge match was after Cooper went down in K- against K State on day one. We came back in day two without her and, and won that match 3-0, and then went on to Iowa State and played two five-set matches without her and had a chance to win both, but certainly won a key match the second time around. So I think those those moments gave us some momentum as we move forward, hopeful to have a type of team that could represent our athletic department in, in postseason. When you look at this time of year where you, you get a victory and a lot of times it can lead to a big celebration and for good reason, 
but still having to prepare for matches in front of you. How do you kind of approach that as a coach this time of year where there is that quick turnaround between celebrating something versus getting ready for kind of a do-or-die match and, and knowing that you want to savor something and enjoy something versus still being focused on, on the prize at hand? Yeah, that's a, that's a delicate balance in that. Uh, somebody told me once that joy delayed is joy forever lost, so... Uh, if you're not going to uh, appreciate those moments and celebrate those moments, uh, it's going to make it more difficult to, to create the, the energy and the, uh, the uh, discipline and the grit to come and, and, and work and, and, and work towards those moments every day. So I think we do our share of celebrating the good times. I think this team has functionally been really pretty good at moving on. And, you know, we six times this year, Derek, we had to play back-to-back in the Big 12. So th- those were times where, hey, if you had a good win, uh, which we did, I think four out of the six uh, doubleheaders we won night one and five out of six we won night two. So um, we were, I think we had that, uh, that propensity to, to uh, celebrate and, and realize what we'd done well, but then had the opportunity to move on to, to compete favorably the next night. That's, that's a great saying to have for this type of stuff. Uh, if you could best describe this team – in a word, a phrase, or maybe a short sentence, how would you do so? Oh boy, um, yeah, I think they, I think they demonstrate grit. You know, we talk about that, um, uh, and maybe grit and grace, our two core values, are displayed on. I think it's a team that shows some gratitude, uh, but more than anything, they compete with humility. Um, and we've gotten, uh, we've been ranked, we've been. You know, we're second outright in the Big 12 in a great league, and I think they still um, have the ability to compete with humility and don't get outside who they are and what they're trying to do. So that was a whole lot of verbiage there for what you asked for, but I I guess I'm trying to wrap that up in a thought with uh, we compete with humility. Well, and, and I guess this is just kind of an extension of that, but what has made this team so fun to coach, like in terms of the players that you're getting to deal with, the assistant coaches you have, uh, what's made going into work every day so much fun for this team? You know, as I tell, I, when I go home and talk to uh, my wife, Pam, who's obviously been by my side over the last 26 years here at KU, uh, about the, the roster 19 is what we call it, and everybody adds value. Uh, from a student-athlete perspective, and not everybody gets the role they want, but everybody's uh, willing to fulfill the role they need to fulfill. Uh, and then now we've had a staff that's been together, uh, you know, for five or six years, and there's great symmetry and synergy on our staff. Um, we've got really good people pulling, everybody pulling in the same direction. Uh, we've got an extremely supportive administration that values volleyball on this campus. And when you get all those things moving in the right direction, you can create something pretty special. Uh, obviously, we're seeing a lot right now. College football, the transfer portal is about to be opening up here. And uh, the transfer portal has been such a big impactor for programs, either good or bad, one way or another. Uh, you guys had a couple big-time transfer portal additions this year, including with Reagan Cooper and, and on a banjo, who uh, have been pivotal pieces for your team uh, how difficult has it been to kind of work the transfer portal since things have really ramped up here over the past couple of years and, and how, I guess, helpful if you do it right, can it be? Yeah, it can be, it can be uh, a slippery slope uh, or if you handle it correctly and do your research, it can be a, 
uh, it can be a great uh, uh, supplier of good good people to your program who really are here for the right reasons. And we we were lucky this year, and then in, in Toy, as you mentioned, in Cooper, but also Michaela Myers, we got three really quality individuals first, and uh, beyond that, uh, we we got some kids I think who were looking for a a new opportunity and maybe just a, a new culture and a new vibe. And uh, this will be Toy's first NCAA tournament. I'm thrilled for her, and, I'm, and she's got another year with us. But for Cooper and Myers, uh, coming from other Big 12 schools, I think they've really found their niche here, and they're ending their career on such a great note. So, um, you know, the, the, the other part of that is, you know, it used to be you develop people within their program and, and, and kids kind of wait their turn. Now with the transfer portal, you know, it's a, kind of more of a year-to-year that you piece together your best opportunity to be successful in that moment. So that creates some situations where you've maybe had some players on the roster for a while who are waiting for their turn. They just got to go out and, and earn it and uh, create the type of role that they want. Cameron Turner just won Big 12 Setter of the Year. What is it about her game that has made her so special and, and such a key player for you the past couple of years? Uh, consistent each and every day. She shows up ready to go to work. Uh, she loves her teammates. She's approachable, zero ego, zero maintenance, uh, much better athlete than people give her credit for. She's an elite athlete. Um, and she was a skilled volleyball player before she got here. Uh, she has now become a great setter and she's arrived, you know, at high school and club. She was asked to do a little bit of everything from primary pass to to attack, to set, to dig, to all those things. And now we've uh, we've uh, created a situation here where she concentrates uh, obviously exclusively on on the setting piece. She's still one of the best right-back defenders we've had in our program, and she can do so many other things. But uh, she's just a credit to our program, and she plays it the right way. And, uh, boy, are we thrilled that a local kid like that can have such a huge impact on our program. Yeah, coming from nearby in the Topeka area, what's the story there? I mean, was was that an easier sell to get her to come to KU than, than maybe some other players being a local kid? Or, or how did you guys kind of find her and, and eventually bring her into the program? Yeah, we uh, uh, we we had her in camp a couple years. And I know there's one year Cameron stayed after to kind of hang out with our team that was going to play. And I said, hey, just jump in. And she looked at me kind of funny, and she <laughs> did. And she kind of morphed into what she needed to be in that moment. Um and I thought if you would have just walked in from the outside and you saw that group playing, you wouldn't know that that's a kid that's probably 15 years old and just a junior in high school. It looked like a kid that belonged with that group. And in that moment, I thought, you know what, this kid's going to – she'll be what she needs to be in the moment when she needs to be it. And uh, it was just us. We were the only Division One offer. I know my buddy at Washburn recruited her hard. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why that would have been a good place for her. But I, I had a special feeling about this kid and what she could do and initially it was for limited scholarship. And obviously when she got here and started doing her thing, uh, she's become a full, full-time scholarship player for us. And uh, this will be her third NCAA tournament in three years. And I know she's proud of that. Well, uh, Anise Havili uh, was obviously legendary setter for you, has her, her name up in the rafters there. How does she compare and contrast to, to what Anise did? Yeah, I mean, Havili uh, – Havili was a had a pit bull mentality. Uh, she was a very emotional player. Cam's a little bit more, I think, uh, even keeled uh, in some ways. Uh, Cam had other characteristics of 
some technique. She'd played a lot of attacker and some other things before she got here. So uh, a well-rounded skill set, but they both are dynamic competitors. They make great decisions in big moments, and they have the ability to lead a team to uh, to their highest potential. And and those are those are traits that are extremely hard to find. And we were very fortunate that we had Anise here for four years, and you know Cam's going down that same path with the with a great start to her career. Talking with Ray Bouchard, head coach for the KU women's volleyball team, first up on Thursday in the first round against Omaha at 7 o'clock. You played Omaha earlier this year. Uh, obviously, they were the team that played Nebraska in that big football stadium game, so I'd imagine for them that, you know, even with a packed, loud whorish coming up on Thursday that, you know, they're going to be uh, ready to go in kind of the big moment. Uh, what is it about them that, that's going to give you a challenge in your opening round game? Yeah, they've just been on a steady growth pattern all year. You know, we got them second match of the year when they weren't ready for, uh, ready for that moment, and they've uh, they've uh, they took on a uh, extremely competitive pre-conference schedule and um, <clears throat> survived that. And then the Summit League had three or four teams, very quality teams at the top, um, and they, uh, you know, they're representing from that league. Uh, their system's a little different. Their personnel's matured, uh, so they'll uh, they'll be a great test for us. If you guys are fortunate enough to win through and, and make it to the second round, Yale-Penn State is the other first-round matchup. Uh, so what would make either one of those teams tough opponents or interesting matchups in uh, round two on Friday night at 530? Well, Yale is, is an Ivy League school, obviously, that's had uh, – people don't know the amount of success that Aaron's had there in the Ivy League with Yale. Uh, and this is one of her better teams. Now, whether she feels like she can match up – Physicality-wise with Penn State, I'm not sure. But uh, anybody that knows anything about volleyball over the last 15 years, Penn State's been better than anybody in the country uh, over that time. Uh, I think five or six national championships. There was a, there was a streak there where they didn't lose a, a match for two or three years. And, you know, Russ Rose, obviously, is a legendary. He's been, he's been gone now for a couple of years, so retired. And one of his former players, uh, Katie Schumacher, obviously taking over and doing an outstanding job. So... Um, they, they will, uh, I think they feel like they maybe should have been a seeded team. I would agree with them. Uh, so I know they think they have something to prove, but, uh, uh, I know Yale would like to have something to say about that. I'm sure Omaha would like to have something to say about that tomorrow night. So, uh, should be a fun group of teams to have here and some good competition. I will a uh, fun one to finish off for you. Last week was obviously Thanksgiving. Do you have a favorite Thanksgiving dish, side dish, or, or anything you get to eat on uh, Thanksgiving Day? Yeah, uh, you know, you roast up a little turkey, and I'm I'm pretty happy with some mashed potatoes and gravy. And uh, uh, I'm I'm into the main course, but uh, anytime there's some sweets afterwards, I'm I'm pretty happy guy. And when do you stop eating Thanksgiving leftover food? Yeah, uh, when they run out. But uh, uh, no, we've uh, we had, we gathered a group this year with some of our players and some friends and time, and uh, it's it's more about the fellowship and the food's always great, but the fellowship's even better. Yeah, I I just had some leftovers yesterday, and uh, my co-host was telling me that's too far. So uh, anyway, okay. <laughs> I appreciate the time, Coach, and uh, good luck on Thursday in the opening round game, and uh, hopefully it means we get to see you on Friday as well, and, and good luck through the rest of the week and, and the entire NCAA tournament here. Sounds great now. Rock shot. That was Kansas volleyball head coach Ray Bouchard.
joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Thanks to Coach B for coming on the show. We had Jill Dorsey Hall on yesterday's show to help break down this pod and, and the rest of the NCAA tournament too. So if you missed that, you can find it on the Best of RCST podcast anywhere you get your podcast brought to you by Massage Envy, brought also uh, now available at KUSports.com. And uh, again, KU Volleyball playing on Thursday with uh, the Penn State-Yale game is going to be the earlier game in the day. And then KU is going to be playing Omaha at 7 o'clock on Thursday night. If they win that one, which, you know, they're favored to, so uh, you'd certainly expect them to, but I guess, you know, at this time of the year, do or die, you never take anything for granted. Uh, Then they move on to Friday at 5.30 to play Penn State. And as uh, Coach B said, like Penn State's been – you know, they're kind of the creme de la creme, so to speak, of, of the blue bloods of, of collegiate volleyball here lately. So uh, that one is at 5.30 on Friday. I, I know they already sold out for some of the tickets, so I, I don't know. Maybe you can finagle your way in some way if, if, if you have a friend who's be willing to sell you tickets or bring you to the game. But it will also be available on uh, ESPN Plus for a broadcast there. Uh, so uh, plenty of ways to tune into the action over the upcoming week. All right, one hour down, two to go. We've got some. KU mailbag coming up. We got some KU basketball audio coming up and some more KU basketball talk after their win last night. Henry Greenstein of KUSports.com is going to join us in the 4 o'clock hour too. With Nick Springer, I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com and the KLWN app. Depending on it. KU mailbag next. 4 o'clock hour, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. We're going to be joined by Henry Greenstein of KUSports.com coming up later in this hour. It'll actually be our very next segment. We also have some KU basketball postgame audio, more KU basketball talk coming throughout the show, including possibly right now, depends where the listeners have directed us. Thank Uh. you to everybody who submitted a question for the KU mailbag. At RCST1320 on Twitter, you can hit us up in a reply. You can hit us up on a tweet. You can hit us up in the DMs. You can also email, email us. Snail mail. Yes. Uh, RCST1320am really. at gmail.com. You, you can hand show up write and, and submit you know, a yeah. question. All for it. All for it. So uh, thank you to everybody who submitted questions. Time for KU Mailbag. First yes. Off, favorite segment of the week. Let's go. Rumor. Th- this one was further down the list, but I wanted to pop it up because... Of the significance. It's significance. Okay. Yeah. Uh, rumors are circling about Andy Kotelnicki interviewing with Penn State. Should we be worried? Yeah, so this has kind of been a, a developing story rapidly over the past, really, 24 hours or so, essentially, where it would seem as though Penn State's interest has been pretty high in Andy Kotelnicki recently. And uh, James Franklin has has reportedly had a meeting, interviewed with him and talked to him a little bit, and uh, the head coach of Penn State, and there's there's some interest there from Penn State. And uh, listen, we hadn't really fully dived into it necessarily, but the fact that Andy Kolnicki has been running a very successful Kansas offense now for the past couple seasons, you would expect this is that this is going to happen. He's a young, bright offensive mind. And in the, in the coaching world, whether it's college or NFL or at any level, those young, bright offensive minds, those are like, I mean, those are those are worth so much. They're so yeah. valuable, and and a lot of teams are real and organizations are really really interested in guys like that who can come in and innovate on the offensive side of the ball and and you know kind of rejuvenate you know programs and whatnot. And so Penn State, obviously, the offense was not great this season. James Franklin's been through half a dozen offensive coordinators in his time at Penn State, and Penn State, I think it 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 felt like this season was the season, but now it just puts more pressure on next season. I think. They are at a turning point. They are at a point to where if they cannot get over the hump and beat the Ohio States and the Michigans of the world, 
James Franklin is is could be gone. So James Franklin quite literally is probably coaching for his job next season. And he's looking for a guy who can spearhead his offensive attack. And Andy Kolnicki, I think, is probably at the top of a lot of lists. And so uh, I think it's natural to see this type of interest. And Kansas was able to fend off some suitors last season. And now another successful season. And here comes more, right? So uh, <clears throat> in terms of a worry level, I, I don't know. I mean, here's what I'll say. I think KU would be okay either way. I think if Andy Kolnicki does decide to leave, it would be very, very exciting for him, and I and I think it's he's at a time where it would make sense, right, to to, to move forward. Now, the, the, the debate with Andy Kolnicki was, would he leave for another coordinator job, or would it have to be a head coaching job for him to leave? Well, this kind of puts that theory to the test, basically, of going to, to Penn State or not. So, it seems like there's some real smoke there. I think this is something that could be resolved pretty quickly, uh, because I'm, I'm sure from the Kansas perspective and from Andy Kolnicki's perspective, he wants to know either, hey... You know, what What do I need to be focusing on going forward with the bowl game for Kansas? But we'll see. In terms of a worry level, I would say, again, I think it's tough. I would just say I'm not worried long-term about KU regardless of what happens. I would be very happy for Andy Kolnicki if he if he does move move on and, and, and goes for a higher-profile position. But obviously, I would love to see him back and have an opportunity to have a full season with Jalen Daniels. Yeah, so a couple things of looking at this. One, would he take the job? Well, I mean, Penn State's been a really good program. And, uh, I mean, they won 21 games over the last two years, and they still have to play in a bowl this year. Uh, they've had one, two, three, four 11-win seasons, five double-digit win seasons now under James Franklin, who's uh, been there since 2014. So yeah. he's had a lot of success. I think this is his 10th year at again, Penn State. Hasn't beaten Michigan or Ohio State. Yeah, so he's trying to get over the I mean, has so, Penn State even been in the Big Ten title game with Franklin? Yes, I think they they've been there one, the one year with uh, Trace McSorley. Oh, and right, they, right, right. Uh, yeah, ended yeah. up going to the Rose Bowl and losing to Sam Darnold in USC. So it's a program where, because of where they're at, you can come in as the offensive coordinator and seriously be the difference in them getting over that hump, yeah. beating a Michigan, beating an Ohio State, and honestly winning a national title. So you would understand that from a pay standpoint, he would probably get a raise. So like you can understand why he would take the job. The downside of it is what you said. With James Franklin, this is not a guy who, oh, their offensive coordinator left because he got a head coaching job. and they're They just fired looking, him, right? Exactly. They yeah. fired him. I believe he's had five or six offensive yeah, coordinators six. in his 10 years. Six. Yeah. Six. So, I mean, the, the lifespan so, of the offensive coordinator there is not very long. Yeah, he's had six, and I think uh, it's either – or this would be his six, whoever he hires. Maybe I think he's only had five. But I think it's two of them ended up leaving for other jobs, like head coaching jobs, and then he's fired three of them. I think yes. it's the number. And, like, the one that really sticks out to me is Kirk Soraka. He was the Minnesota offensive coordinator from, like, 2017 to 2019. And that 2019 Minnesota team was the, the one that went, like, 11-2. and two. They averaged 34 points per game. It was the team that had uh, Rashad Bateman and, and all those good receivers on the team. And he ended up getting hired by Penn State from there, and he was gone after, like, a year. Um, and, and is now back at, like, Minnesota, went to Minnesota and then Rutgers. So, like... It can easily happen, and, and it's not just that there's been turmoil with the offensive coordinators under Franklin. What you said, if Franklin goes 8-4 and four next season, there, there's a lot of heat, probably unnecessarily so, despite the fact they're winning double-digit games just because they haven't been able to get over the hump lately yeah. of the Michigans and Ohio States, that if James Franklin were to be let go after a 7-5, and 8-4 and four season next year, then you're probably trying to find a new job. Now, that is kind of the nature of the coaching gig that I don't think any coach... Like, you have to approach when you take a new job. 
I'm going to be the guy to fix it. Yeah. You have to. Or we're going to be successful. Exactly. You have to approach it that way. So maybe you shouldn't worry that way. Uh, but it, it would make sense if he left it. But I would understand if you'd want to stay. Uh, you know, maybe KU can bump his pay a little bit. Um, again, this is not a head coaching position. I do think he wants to be a head coach. If you have a good year at, at Penn State as a offense coordinator, you're probably getting a Power 5 head coach job. Maybe right now at Kansas, you're only getting Group of 5 head coach. So you would understand yeah. why it would happen. Well, Shouldn't and again, be worried, though. my thought with Andy Kulnicki has been Lance Leipold is, is here for the length of his contract. Andy Kulnicki makes perfect sense as the heir apparent sure. head coach at Kansas. If I mean, I think that would be the dream for a lot of Kansas fans would be Andy Kulnicki works with Lance Leipold over the next couple of years, and then Lance Leipold you know, gets to the point where he decides to retire, and you just pass it off to Andy Kulnicki. Yeah, and so should we be worried? I mean, should you be worried in him leaving? Yeah, I think you should. It's a good job, and they'd be paying yeah. a lot of money. And this and this may not be the only school that comes calling, right? If he turns down Penn State, there probably will be others. Of course. Um, but should you be worried long-term as a program? Well, no. Maybe in the short term, so. like, does this put a hit, a hit a little bit on offense? Like, yeah, it absolutely could. But still, you're going to have so much back on offense next year that you might be okay regardless. Like, I, I don't know if they just promote Jim Zabrowski. He was previously an offensive coordinator with Lance Leipold. Um, or, or what they would do hiring externally or whatever. You would have pieces. And, and here's the fact of the matter. If you are going to be a successful football program, you are going to lose assistant coaches at some point for other jobs. Like, look, yeah. at, look at Nick Saban with Alabama. This every coaching tree years, has a thousand coaches because exactly. they come in and they leave. You lose your offense coordinator. You lose your defensive coordinator, right, yeah. to other head coaching jobs. You have to be able to fill and replace them. And if you trust your head coach, which Lance Leipold has given you zero reason not to trust him, he has given you all the reason in the world to trust him, then you should trust his ability to hire another coach or to fill in the offensive coordinator. So, yes, it would be a loss for KU, but as a program, realistically— you're not going to be able to keep everybody together all the time. You have to be able to overcome that. Yeah. And uh, from that standpoint, I still trust the KU and Lance Leipold would be okay. Uh, this one from Terry. Would you rather eat three pounds of Skyline chili or three pounds of pumpkin pie? That's a lot. <laughs> okay. So here's here's the deal. With I'm the pumpkin this pie, sitting. Yeah, with the pumpkin pie, I think I would throw up after like <laughs> one pound. I don't think I could physically eat three pounds of pumpkin pie. I don't know pie. that I could eat three pounds of either of these, to be honest. Well, but. okay, but here's what I was thinking. The three pounds of Skyline chili, that's easy because it's two pounds of shredded cheese <laughs> and, one, and one pound of chili. So it's easy. Well, it's do you get to count like uh, uh, whipped cream on the poundage of the pumpkin pie? Whipped cream doesn't the, weigh very the much. Same though. idea, though, of the cheese. But whipped cream How much is does shredded light. cheese weigh? White. <laughs> shredded. There's air between <laughs> But whipped cream is inherently light and fluffy. I, I honestly think I would do the Skyline Chili on this one. I now, the problem agree. is I'd have to I'd have to install a new toilet after I'm done with the Skyline Chili. <laughs> so yeah, that, I, that'd I be would an have issue. trouble with both, to be honest. I do like pumpkin pie, but I'm actually more of a pecan and, and uh, See, an apple pie I like person. pumpkin pie, too, but it's a texture thing, man. I don't think I could okay. eat three pounds of that texture. Think about it. I don't mind the texture, so that wouldn't be the issue But can me. you eat it for three pounds? Yeah, I just uh, pumpkin enough- pie to me gets a bit monotonous. Exactly. So that's what I'm saying. Can you eat three pounds sure. of that? At least with chili, I could eat it's the noodles different- at once. I could eat the cheese. Yeah, at it's once. a different texture. Yeah, you get different tastes. Yeah. You get different. You know. Yeah, and again, you get two pounds of cheese. Yeah. I mean, I saw the broadcast in case it's any. They had a pound of cheese on that one right there. Uh, this one from Frank. Who are KU's most likely portal entries? And uh, some side questions with that. Could a running back enter if Neil stays? Backup receiver if all three receivers stay? Uh, it's hard to... S- oh, uh, sorry. These are me actually writing my notes. I just read them. Oh. 
Here, okay, here's what I was going to say. Could a running back enter if Devin Neal stays? <laughs> I thought he wrote these, but I just jotted these down myself. Now I feel like an absolute idiot. This is live radio. Anyway, live, that was baby. my question. If Devin Neal does come back, like, could one of the running backs be like, I'm gone, right? Yeah, I mean, so you think about it. Dylan McDuffie, is, Dylan McDuffie is gone for sure. Yes. Yeah, but does Daniel Morrison be like, I'm going to use a grad transfer year? Again, with David with Saban Morrison, he transferred from Nebraska, but I think he could grad transfer I technically. so. And, and and to your point, does is Daniel Hyshaw fine with essentially being second fiddle again, right? Yeah, right. And then, or even a guy like Tory Lachlan. I mean, Tory Lachlan yeah, is a player that I think has shown it his extreme versatility. What if he wants to go and say, "Hey, I could go somewhere and be yeah. a guy," you know? Maybe. Uh, and plus, on top of that, KU has a a trio of young freshman running backs. They already have Johnny Thompson, Red Martell is coming in, and Harry Stewart is, is the other. Right. One, I think so. They already the running back room is going to be pretty full of especially young guys. That are going to be hungry to get on the field, so it's possible if Devin Neal does come yeah. back. Uh, if all three receivers stay, like I was saying, is my note. Um, <laughs> could somebody go behind them? Like, could a Tanaka Scott be like, "I'm ready to take a bigger step"? Could yeah. one of those guys? I um, think. I think from the wide receiver room, Tanaka Scott's the biggest, the sure. most likely. And I, I transferred. Like the one thing with Doug Emelian, he already transferred to you. Yeah. Now again, if you graduate, you can go freely. I don't know where he's at graduation wise. I think this is only his. Third year of school. I guess. So I mean, what? A, I mean, do you think like a, a Keaton Kubeka would maybe consider it? Or uh, I don't one think Kubeka would because he was able to get on the field a good amount with special teams. Like clearly they like er, him early in the staff. Yeah. But maybe you'd look at some of the other freshman receivers. Maybe they would. They, they would uh, certainly think about it. And then I, I mentioned this to you. I think I don't remember if I even said this on the air, or off the air. I think Trevor Cardell would be a guy I would keep an eye on as possibly. See, I don't see that one as much. You don't see it? No, because I, th- I think he really does like being in that group, and I think he's a program guy. And then Mason Fairchild's graduating. With Jared Casey specifically, I don't know that I view Jared Casey's role as being Mason Fairchild replacement. No, it's not. I it's think Cardell not. will be the Fairchild replacement, and I would, Jared Casey stays in the I Jared would Casey role. I probably agree, but I'm just saying, you know, you got you got Jaden Ham coming in behind. Sure. You know, there's there's still Jared a lot Noah of talent. Has another year. Yeah, yeah, there's still Will a lot Higgins. of talent in that uh, in that white in that tight end room too. Yeah, um, it, you know, it's hard to say. Like theoretically, anybody who's not on the two deep, it would not shock you at this day and age in college football. Sure. You know, so any sure. young players who didn't get play time or any players not on the two deep at this point, like those are kind of obvious ones that I don't feel the need to kind of go over. Yeah. Um, the ones that would be like what makes it tough is that. In theory, it's hard for me to be like, oh, well, this guy would transfer who's a starter because we don't know. The only reason players would transfer who are starters would be either they're unhappy with, like, a coach or a situation uh, or or they don't like relationships or something, which we don't know about, or they are getting, like, NIL poached where behind closed doors there's some back-channeling going on where they're about to get a payday to go off. And we don't know that stuff, so I'm not going to even speculate on it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the other part of Frank's question. This is the actual other part of Frank's question. What position are KU's most likely portal targets? Yeah, I mean, I think you look at the quarterback, and, you know, that's the big earlier question, in the season, yeah. earlier in the season, you would have said, oh, for sure, KU's probably going to be looking for a guy in the portal. But now Jalen Daniels is coming back. Cole Ballard has... has Proved his medal, right? As as a guy who can be a very serviceable backup quarterback for you next season with no Jason Bean. Mm-hmm. Isaiah Marshall's been going nuts, right? He, you know, he's a guy coming in as a true freshman that you probably wouldn't expect him to have to play next season. But I mean, in a in a pinch, right? He could be the he could be Cole Ballard. This what Cole Ballard was this season, right? Playing four games and still redshirt if he needed to. Yeah. So I I don't know. I kind of almost would lean no on the quarterback now for KU. It has to be the right situation too. Like they, it'd have to be somebody they value as being a good backup. 
but how many good backups exactly. how are going to be quarterbacks... like, I'm signing up to be a yes, backup? Exactly. You know? How many guys are out there saying, yeah, I'm going to come to Kansas where they have a super talented young freshman coming in who's probably going to be the starter going forward. Plus, Cole Ballard has already shown what he can do. And you're going to be a backup anyways with Jalen Daniels. So yeah. I would say no. I would look to the defensive tackle and defensive line again because, you know, Austin Booker has a decision to make. Sounds like they're already targeting one middle Tennessee state defensive tackle. Is you you good, think about in the in the middle, time. Devin Phillips is gone, yeah. right? Now you still have Gage Keys, you still have Tommy, Tommy Dunn, DJ Withers, but the defensive line position is the one where it's like, it's almost one of those situations where you can never have enough guys. And you'll play them all. So exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I can see that. Um, obviously, if you do end up losing Austin Booker to the draft, I'd imagine probably look for an edge. Or an yeah. edge like they've done the past couple of years. Yeah. Uh, if you don't, they might not. Well, Maybe they'd, they'd get more of a rotational guy to replace, like, Patrick Joyner. Jimmy, Jimmy Robinson is— Yeah, Robinson be can gone, have right? another year. Or he can no, he back? can have another okay. year. Austin Booker can have another two years. So, like, uh, I, I think they'll target a D-end in some way, but whether Booker goes or not, whether Robinson goes or not, I guess, uh, would probably be dependent on what level, whether they'd bring in more of, like, a rotational guy or a star-level guy. Uh, I don't think they're going to go for a receiver hard, but I think we saw this in the spring— KU was open to bringing on a receiver if they were a good, like, yard-after-catch, ball-in-hand receiver because that's kind of the one thing that, that they didn't have as much of in the receiver room. So if one of those emerges, I can see them going after him, but the, I don't think they're just going to go for a receiver just to go for a receiver. Um, maybe you look at center and left tackle because you're going to be losing that, but also I feel like I feel like KU has a plan in place for the yeah. O-line with the depth they brought on. I think yeah. Michael Ford's just going to move to center next year, so... Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they just add same same thing that you said about the D line. It never hurts to have more offensive linemen. Yeah. So from that standpoint, um, yeah, you look to hit that. I think linebacker is clearly one. We've seen them yeah. hit the linebacker transfer portal hard, right? I mean, yeah. you think last year the two guys with plus, McCaskill and Gilliard, yeah. two years before it was uh, Rich Miller and Craig Young coming in. Plus, you're losing both those guys. Rich and Miller and Craig Young both are both going to be gone. Uh, this past year you brought in J.B. Brown. I bet you they bring in another linebacker via the transfer portal. And then maybe you have a guy like Brantley who's ready to take another step. Tywan Berryhill can come back, and J.B. Brown can be back. And then outside of that, I think it's just kind of a best available. Maybe running back, if, if Devin Neal goes, I don't think they'd bring on like a a running back who comes in that they feel like would be a 1,200-yard guy, but bring in another Dylan McDuffie type to be the spell to Daniel Hyshaw. You know, I think that would kind of make some sense there. Uh, but yeah, outside of that, just kind of best available. Uh, but certainly you're always trying to beef up the uh, offensive and defensive line. This one from Seth. Would you rather Kansas win the bowl game if it meant Devin Neal goes pro or lose the bowl game and Devin Neal comes back? Interesting question. Uh, honestly, I'm kind of fine with either outcome. Like, it would be really awesome to win the yeah. bowl game. And, and I think for Devin Neal, like, I'm happy either way. Because if he goes pro, he deserves it, first of all. He's, he's an excellent player, and I think he will make an NFL team very happy with wh wherever he's at, with his work ethic and with the way he plays and, and all that. And and if he comes back, it's a great story, obviously, a local kid coming back and, and possibly having a chance to go down as one of, as the greatest running greatest K running back ever. Uh, so I'm kind of okay with either outcome. Like, right. I've, I've, I've said, I have stated many times, like, at this stage, winning or losing the bowl game for me personally is not like a season-defining thing. Like if you lose the bowl game, whatever. If you win the bowl game, awesome. It's not. I, I don't know. It's, that's just. I understand people might think about it that. Be the him coming back because I, that would I have would a big say, impact on the following. I season. guess yes. I, I guess yes. But I'm okay with either outcome. Truly. I mean, Devin Neal is is he a Heisman candidate if he comes back? Seriously. I don't know. I don't know if he would get the volume of touches to be a Heisman candidate. Maybe not. Be kind of interesting. It would be interesting for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, selfishly, that's the answer. But also to your point, like you're happy for a kid and you want 
him to do what he wants to do. For so from that standpoint, sure. you know, yeah. you're kind of happy either way. Uh, the ghost of the old booth. Will Logan First Brown all, great name. get a red shirt for this season and start next season? Yeah, Chances so he, him and Demarius McGee start. Are any of the running backs redshirted? So Logan Brown suffered a season-ending injury early in the yes. season. Uh, so I think I would he assume only participated in like one. Yeah, I would assume yes, he can either get a medical or just a redshirt. Or I am under the assumption he will redshirt. Yes, yes, because he got injured uh, early in the season, and and I think yes, he's a guy that based off of his talent, which you would means expect that he'll to still be, have two more years at Kansas if he wants it. Yeah, and and I think to, to answer the second part of that, yes, I would expect that he's a guy that should be in competition for a starting job, I would think, based off of this. Yeah, well, so when you look at the starting line next year, um, I, I think, like I said, I'm expecting Michael Ford to move over to center. He was practicing, when Mike Nowitzki was out in spring ball last year, they put Ford at center a lot. So you have that there. Then you look at uh, our Maj Reed Adams, uh, Kobe Baines on the interior of that offensive line. Now that Ford moves to guard, that would open up both of them to start at guard. Uh, you look at Bryce Cabledew coming back to be one of your tackles. So yeah. then it becomes a competition. I Which, guess Spencer Lavelle, but he yeah. been more of a guard type yeah. at this point. Uh, uh, Calvin Clements would be in that discussion. And now, I think the interesting Logan thing, Brown. I think the interesting thing about about Bryce Cabledew is if you remember back in back in the fall and fall camp, he talked about how he had they had tried him at left yeah. tackle and he didn't he didn't like it. He didn't want to be that. So that tells me, right. yeah. yeah. So that tells me that he would stay at right, and you're looking for a left. Which means it's between Clements and Brown at left tackle. And I mean, because Brown's been out, does that give Clements actually a leg up? Um, I think everybody thought when Logan Brown committed to come to Kansas that he, he was would be a, a big time player and yeah. he would be a starter. So yeah, I mean, I think it'll be a tight competition. I will say we've seen mostly six linemen rotate in at different points for KU this year. Maybe it's one of those situations again last year. Now, as far as Demarius McGee starting. I mean, that just comes down to which guys go pro. If Kobe and Melo come back, it's like, you know, good luck kind of starting there. But let's say Kobe and Melo both go pro, you know? At that point, you're looking at Kalen Gervin graduating too, Quentin yeah. Lasseter graduating. So basically your top four corners at that point would be gone. So yeah, I think Demarius McGee would be a favorite to start. Maybe at that yeah. point you would look he's at... Been, he's been dealing with injuries too, right? I think. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. Maybe at that point you'd be looking at BJ Dilworth in competition. You'd also be looking you're obviously, at... Uh, you're bringing in a lot of young guys. Yeah, Jameel Croft, and you're bringing in a lot of young guys to kind of start there. But Which yeah, I think makes you nervous, have a but yeah, yeah. Now, if, if let's say only one of Melo or Kobe goes pro... At that point, it's it's a huge competition. I don't totally know. Um, are any of the running backs redshirting? Uh, again, I don't know for sure, but I, I'd imagine Johnny Thompson will redshirt. He like for this play. season? Like, why would you not? Yeah, you know, I would assume he's redshirting. Right? Yeah. So that would be the one. Uh, okay. Uh, I don't know if we have I, – I guess we can do this one quickly. From Arlo, okay. would you eat Pop-Tarts for a month, nothing else, if it meant KU went undefeated in every sport the rest of the 2023 calendar year? All right, so think about this for a second. That would mean KU basketball would get wins over UConn. Missouri, Missouri Indiana. Indiana, Yale, and, and Yale, big one over Yale. KU basketball, Stop, KU football yeah. would win their bowl game. KU volleyball, KU volleyball would win, win the national championship. Title. Yes. So I think you almost have to say yes. I would do yes. I would do this. I think you have to say I would yes. Take the sacrifice. I don't even yes. know it's much of a sacrifice. I love pop tarts. <laughs> Maybe for my health it would be a sacrifice, but dude, you, know, you need to be in tip top shape it. for when your baby gets born. Yeah, that's right. All right, he's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. That's our KU mailbag. Uh, Henry Greenstein, Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, joins us next with RCST. This is KLWN. Depend on it.
Welcome back into Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson, and we're joined now by Henry Greenstein of the Lawrence Journal World and KUSports.com. I want to start with the uh, KU basketball team. They won last night against Eastern Illinois, but a lot of angst among KU fans after the style of how it was done. 71-63, to the final score. Game that was much closer than was expected to be. Um, so I, I've seen different people talking about different things they're worried about right now with the KU men's basketball team. What to you, Henry, what, what is the most concerning thing as it pertains to the basketball team at this point in time? Yeah, it's an interesting one, Derek, because as lackluster as the performance was, there isn't like a single thing that really jumps off the page that was so like extraordinarily bad that it would put them in that situation. I mean, it's not like the 18 turnovers against Marquette or whatever, but I mean, one thing that comes to mind, certainly, from discussions last night is getting out-rebounded by a team that, for much of the game, didn't have anyone taller than 6'8 on the floor. And, and Hunter Dickinson had 13 rebounds, and no one else had more than three. And that just it's just a strange thing to say about a team where Kevin McCuller has already had two triple-doubles, but besides Hunter and Kevin, no one else is really doing work on the boards. I mean, Johnny Furphy's had the occasional moment where he's snagged a good offensive rebound, but he can't really do that if he's not on the floor, and if he can't defend better, then he's not going to be on the floor. and So that's giving a lot of extra possessions to opposing teams, and that's something they'll really need to work on, especially with a team like UConn coming in that has uh, you know, another triple-double machine uh, in Newton and then also Donovan Klingon, and just going, to be a, uh, just going to be a tough look for them if they can't do better than they did yesterday. Yeah, and right now, beyond the defensive rebounding, I think they're 266th in the country in offensive rebounding rate. Now, uh, we did see the turnover numbers drop down a little bit last night after some bad turnover games in Maui, and we did see them force turnovers. That's been kind of a low mark for them. But a couple other things that stuck out in the game last night that continue to be, I guess, issues for them was the free throw shooting. Not that it was horrible last night, but 67%. That's about in line with where they are for the season, which is 258th in the country. Um, and obviously the three-point shooting, which they were 3 of 14. Now, overall on the season, they're still shooting 38% from three, which speaks to how insane those first two games were. Uh, but which of their issues right now, uh, among the rebounding, the three-point shooting, the free-throw shooting, which of those three do you feel like is the most fixable moving forward? Most fixable? I, I don't think free-throw shooting because I think that's something where I don't know. I mean, it's hard to get better at it, and at least from an outsider's perspective, it always seems so totally arbitrary when a team does start doing well. Like, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we had some game where KU suddenly went, like, 17 of 20 from the line or something, and then everyone would have to quiet down about that particular issue. But let's see. I mean, between three-point shooting and rebounding, um, I think the rebounding is more easily fixable. That's a matter of positioning. It's a matter of hustle. It's the sort of things that Self likes to kind of beat into his teams. I think with three-point shooting... Kind of like what I was saying about Furphy earlier, it's hard for the people who can make the threes to get on the floor if they can't defend better, and that was what happened to Nick Timberlake yesterday. After airballing his first shot, he had a nice three and then a pull-up jumper, and I was like, okay, maybe Nick Timberlake has something going, but self-explained post-game that he was really upset with how Nick defended an inbound play under the basket. He ended up only playing three minutes in the second half, and I, I think it's that sort of thing that will make it difficult for those guys who could maybe shoot threes well, like Timberlake and Furphy, to make enough of an impact on the overall numbers. Um, I think that the Eastern Illinois did a pretty good job 
preventing Kevin McCuller from getting a lot of the open three-pointers that he did against some of the mid-major opponents KU played earlier um, and kind of forcing him to slash. And, and normally that works out well for him, but he wasn't doing great early on yesterday. Um, but I think there will be more threes for Kevin to take later on as well. Well, I guess what do you make of the development or, or the at least attempt to develop the bench right now in terms of, you know, Jamari McDowell, it was uh, the Tennessee game. He plays 27 minutes, felt like maybe he was starting to make inroads, but then in this one he only plays, I think, seven minutes last night against Eastern Illinois. Like you said, with Timberlake, he finally hit a couple shots, but because of some of the other stuff, doesn't get in the game. Does it feel like we are any closer from where we were at the beginning of the season to figuring out what KU's bench and rotation is going to look like? Yeah, I guess I forgot to mention with Timberwake that he also had a strange missed dunk, which probably didn't do him any favors. But, yeah, and to answer your question, I'm I'm not really sure. I, I really don't think that we are that much closer. I think it just has to feel like a matter of course now that Omarco is going to start at that fifth position. And I don't blame Bill Self for doing that because I think Omarco could be the highest ceiling member of any of the five through nine players. I mean, Furphy's probably his biggest competition for that. So, I think leaving him out there kind of until he figures it out isn't a bad strategy. Um, I just I kind of saw this going differently as, as we discussed it before the season. I sort of thought Timberlake would be the one getting most of the minutes and that Almarco would do so much off the bench that there would be no choice but to put him in. That's not what's happened. Instead, Almarco's been starting every night and hasn't really done enough to make people think he should continue to hold the starting job. Um, as for Jamari, I, I really think he did look good, um, and I was a little surprised that he didn't get more time yesterday. But I, I think maybe it's, he's just kind of like a known quantity at this point. I'm, I'm not totally sure. Uh, I, I thought there was a chance he would get to start, and I'll be interested to see if that happens going forward or if Self will continue to use him for a spark of sort like he had against Kentucky and Tennessee. KU takes on UConn on Friday, which which you mentioned a little bit there. Do all of the worries, do all of these things that the fans have worried about from last night's game with Eastern Illinois, do they just go away? Do they poof if Kansas beats UConn? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I talked about this with football too, but one thing that I've noticed about the fans here is that the the emotional spectrum swings so wildly from, from one game to the next. And honestly, I think that's just part of the nature of sports fandom, but it really is fascinating to see how, kind of like what I referenced with the free throw shooting earlier, if they had one really good free throw, free throw shooting game, I don't think we'd hear anything else about that for a while until, of course, the next time that K.J. Adams misses two in a row or whatever. So, yes, I think if they do well against UConn, even if maybe they don't win, if they're just like competitive and go toe-to-toe with UConn, I think that people would feel a lot better, um, especially heading into uh, a week where they face Mizzou, which, of course, is always so cool on the calendar. And uh, Mizzou hasn't looked exceptional this year. Obviously, they lost to Jackson State, but uh, that'll be another game that people will have their eye on for sure. As far as the matchup, I guess, goes, how do you see Kansas matching up? Do you think they have a, a real shot of beating UConn, a team who has won 24 consecutive games by double-digit points against non-conference opponents? Yeah, I was just reading about that streak. It's incredibly impressive. I do think they have a real chance. I think part of that comes down to the home field advantage, which I'm sure will be impeccable for this one. UConn has never played at Allen Fieldhouse, and they've actually never beaten KU, period. So uh, I think that'll play a significant role. Um, I think Hunter Dickinson is on fire right now, and I think that might ameliorate any concerns people have about him going up against another guy who's also seven foot two. Um, I just think it'll be on 
uh, Dewan Harris and Kevin McCullough to take their already strong defense to another level against some of these potent guards. I mentioned Newton. They also got uh, Cam Spencer. I think one guy who could potentially present a matchup problem is Caravan because he, like, he can stretch the floor as a forward. Um, I don't know if Stefan Castle will play. I'm actually not sure if it's not Stefan or Stefan, so I apologize for that. But I'm not sure if Castle will play because um, he's only played two games and he was targeting this, his return from injury. Uh, but I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, that would be a bit of a break for KU if he doesn't because he's a five-star freshman. Uh, he and Omarco played together at McDonald's All-American game. So threats all over the floor, every position, and the ones who they have in the paint can go out on the perimeter and accomplish stuff as well. going to be really tough and going to require a level of defense that we probably haven't seen from KU at any point this year. Talking with Henry Greenstein, KUSports.com, Lawrence Journal World. Uh, switching over to the football side of things, we saw KU finish out the season with the win against Cincinnati, 8-4 and four on the year as they uh, make it into a bowl game from here. Do you have any preference, or, or what is the biggest fan preference that you think you've seen so far from which bowl game KU uh, they want KU to play in, and, and do you have a personal preference? Yeah, I think my personal preference is very distinct from that of the fans because I'm a big guaranteed rate supporter. I would love to go to Phoenix again. Part of that is that I don't celebrate Christmas, and part of it is that I lived in Phoenix for a year, so would love to go back there. And also it times out well having space after the Yale basketball game and before the Wichita State basketball game on either side, which is not something I can say for these other games. Um, however, in terms of fan preference, it's kind of weird. I see a lot of people clamoring for the Pop-Tarts Bowl. Um, I think there's been kind of a massive social media campaign in that direction. But that one could potentially be problematic in terms of getting there after Christmas for people who are doing that, too. I mean, I, I, I know it's, it's like further after than guaranteed rate, but it's pretty close. I think people just want to go to Florida in the winter. Can't really blame them for that. From my perspective, it's like I'm going to be in Orlando two weeks after that for the basketball game against UCF, so not quite as exciting. Uh, and then the Armed Forces Bowl, I think, is a nice compromise in terms of, like, a destination that's close to home. And I just – I don't totally get the Armed Forces Bowl thing because that's lower than they were projected to be in before they beat Cincinnati. And also, if if we had to go to that game, then I'd probably have to miss the basketball game against Yale. So, selfishly, I'm hoping for the guaranteed rate bowl, but I'm hearing from fans a lot of support for Armed Forces because it's earlier – and Pop-Tarts Bowl because it's later. Yeah, I think people just like Pop-Tarts, too. I think there's something to do with that, that, that <laughs> they just love the idea of something they love involved with the bowl game. Uh, looking back over the course of the regular season now, as it has finished up for KU football, what do you think was your main takeaway uh, over the 12 games about this program, about this team? Um, I think a lot of the success they had really speaks to the power of the scheme. Uh, I, I think it's really remarkable that without having Jalen Daniels for the vast majority of the season, they still had eight wins, which I didn't think they would get to with Jalen Daniels. Um, and a lot of that is due to the improvement of Jason Bean, but it, all, it also speaks very highly of Jim Zabrowski and Andy Kolnicki and everyone on the opposite side who got those guys ready week after week despite the uncertainty surrounding that position. And you can say a similar thing on the defensive side. They rotate so much. Uh, so many people were called upon to make big plays, uh, and they frequently did. Uh, the defense kind of accomplished what we were saying they would need to, which was to be passable enough to let the offense outscore other teams. And, you know, the defense struggled a lot against the run, 
that was not very much improved from last year, and it kind of felt inevitable a lot of weeks that they would get gashed by whoever they were playing against. But they did a pretty good job holding teams to field goals and had some big plays against the pass. And I think on the whole it just speaks to kind of the single-mindedness of this team and the coaching staff doing a good job of unifying them on both sides of the ball. Uh, I, I want to get an updated worry scale number for you from Jalen Daniels. Now that we're headed into a bowl game, we got we got three, four extra weeks to figure out the worry scale. What what would the scale be for Jalen Daniels in the bowl game, and then what would the scale be for twenty twenty four? I I have like no idea what's going on with Jalen Daniels' injury at this point. I I don't find it highly likely that we'll see him in the bowl game, in part because of how Bean has played and because Bean is going to be playing his last ever college football game. But that's not really related to injury. Uh, going into next season, I guess we'll have to see how things happen during the spring, but I'm sure we'll get purely positive messaging about it. I mean, last spring they told us they, that Jalen was going to become bulletproof, and I don't know. So uh, as far as a number, I guess I'm kind of like at a passive five just going forward indefinitely until I get some information and maybe it's on me to get more information since that's part of my job. But yeah, I just feel like it's been kind of a Jalen Daniels information vacuum of late. Yeah, it certainly has. Uh, the big 12 awards just came out earlier today and uh, all big 12 first team, Austin Booker, Kobe Bryant, Dominic Pooney, Devin Neal and Kenny Logan got on the second team. And then a bunch of honorable mention picks with Lawrence Arnold, Jason Bean, Mello Dotson, Jeremy Robinson, and then honorable mention votes for uh, Austin Booker as D-lineman of the year. Uh, I think I might have skipped over Mason Fairchild. Uh, Devin Neal is Offensive Player of the Year, and Dominic Pooney is Offensive Lineman of the Year. Uh, anything surprise you from the awards or, or all about as normal as what you expected? Yeah, th- that's pretty much what I expected, and that's I, I feel validated because that's in line w- with what I've been preparing for my, my AP All-Big 12 ballot that I have to submit, so I feel good about my own judgment but yeah one thing that stands out to me is just really impressed as I have been all year by Austin Booker a guy who really didn't play much at all uh KU took a chance on him and his athleticism and it really paid off you know I'm still not sure that he was like a go-to pass rush guy in the sense that they got good contributions from everyone but certainly he was a terror for opposing tackles ended up third in sacks in the big 12 if you look at PFF grades for defensive ends He's 107 spots above the next closest Big wow. 12 defensive end, which was Malik Van from Cincinnati. So I think, yeah, hearing that he got that kind of recognition uh, speaks very well of him and speaks very well of KU for picking him out in the portal. Uh, we're talking with Henry Greenstein, KUSports.com, Lawrence Journal World. There's also some uh, volleyball, women's basketball action kind of going on or has gone on over the last week that's been kind of notable. Uh, what are some of the interesting things that you feel like you guys have going on at KUSports.com between that, between KU basketball, KU football coverage that people can check out right now? Yeah, we've been, we've been really, uh, I guess, intent on covering both of those sports very effectively and uh, – Avery Hamill is doing a great job helping out with that. Um, you can check out our previews for the volleyball tournament. I just put up a second one today after getting to do some interviews yesterday prior to the basketball game. Um, but, I, yeah, I just say keep an eye on it because it's going to be a very full homepage the next couple of days on KU Sports with all the action going on. All right. He's Henry Greenstein, Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. Henry, appreciate the time as always, man. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. All right. Thank you.
That was Henry Greenstein, Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Uh, we're going to get some KU player audio from after the game against Eastern Illinois. Coming up on the other side, we also are going to get to some uh, Bill Self audio from after the game coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, and we still have to get to our uh, KU basketball takeaways coming up at 5.05. With Nick Springer, I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, klwn.com, and the KLWN app, depending on it. 5 o'clock hour, you're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. We'll get to some Bill Self postgame audio coming up here in our next segment of RCST. But KU wins last night 71-63 to over Eastern Illinois. Time for our KU basketball takeaways. Let's start with the biggest positive. What was the biggest positive <laughs> from last night's game in which uh, if you were just kind of doom scrolling on Twitter, you would not think was, there were a lot of positives? Yeah. I mean, uh, isn't that at least they won? I think because I yeah, mean, all these they conversations won. would be amplified eight hundred times if they would have lost that game. Yeah, I mean, I was I was texting with you during the game last night about if KU loses that game, is it their worst regular season loss ever? Like in the history of Kansas basketball? <laughs> I said it loss. certainly would be under Bill Self. It's it's hard to know. Like, yeah, I mean, you'd have to. Yeah, nineteen seventy two. Did they lose? Them, maybe you know. you know? Did Wilt Chamberlain randomly lose a game in nineteen fifty four or whatever? Or something, yeah, exactly. Where it was like, how did they lose that? Or you know, or maybe the Topeka YMCA in 1919 is still the worst loss in Kansas basketball history. I don't know, uh, but yeah, no, it was, uh, it's, yeah, like you said, especially if you were if you happen to be on social media uh, last night, it was uh, it, it was it was pretty dark, you know, and and uh, you know, it's not like KU fans are known for being for having sane reactions to this kind of stuff. So yeah, I mean, I guess the biggest positive being that you won. Uh, maybe that Dickinson had a, another great game, right? I mean, 25 and 13. Dude, dude's insane. Uh, to, so that certainly should have him feeling good heading into this matchup against uh, against Klingon. So, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, t- to your point, it's one of those rare situations where off of a win, you don't really have a lot of positives to, to think of. I Yeah, that, that's got to be the one thing that it's like even in a bad performance you want. I mean, outside of that, it's got to be like Hunter Dickinson, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Which continues to be all American good. Yeah, which by the way, the you good. you said under on the twelve and a half rebounds. I did. That was and, brutal. Uh, he well, had he had thirteen. Which, honestly, over. honestly, he had nine in the first half. I think I think my process there was okay. I think the result just ended up bad. Like the process was, I thought Kansas was going to win by twenty thirty points. He wouldn't be in there, and the, he played thirty five minutes. Yeah. Played thirty five minutes. I thought he was going to play twenty five. All right. So you know? I think I asked you about this back at, during Maui and whatnot, but. For a team, for a team uh, like Hunter Dickinson, for example, Kevin McCuller, for guys to have to exert that much energy and play that much ahead of a big game against UConn, is there any concern there for you coming off that? I mean, or is it well, you know, you got th- you know two or three days, it's fine. Um, that's a good question. I think it's fine with the two days. I think it's probably fine too, but you would like to not have to exert so much energy ahead sure. of you know one of the biggest games in your non-conference schedule. Yeah, and I mean, the beauty at least, like, you'll have a few extra days off between this game and your next game because the next game after this one's UMKC on Tuesday, which will be a home game too. Yeah. Uh, so you'll have, you know, three days kind of in between to to rest up if if you do kind of exert yourself. Yeah. I don't think it's a huge deal. Yeah, I don't – yeah, I, I just – I was just floating. I, I don't really think so either, but I just I just thought of it. Yeah. So. Uh, outside of that, I would, I would say another positive from the game, like – well, I mean, having 11 blocks is impressive just any time you can do that. But we talked about this coming into the game that 
Kansas, through their first six games, had not been a good turnover team on both ends of the floor. They were not forcing a lot of turnovers. They were turning it over too much. There were still a few sloppy turnovers here or there through the game for Kansas, so they didn't completely eliminate them. But at the end of the day, they had 10 of them, which isn't like a bad number by any means. They forced 16 of them, including 11 steals. So that was actually nice to see that the turnover numbers started to uh, kind of swing their way once again, which I think they have to do because uh, let's get to our biggest negative here. One of them yeah. has to be shooting. And if you're not going to shoot the ball well, you have to find other ways to win extra possessions so that your two-point dominance can become more into play. Uh, for me, the biggest negative was just the shooting, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, 3 of 14 from 3, not good enough. Also, right? 12 of 18 at the free throw line. Yeah, dude, again, you don't even want to get me started on that. Right now, I'm going to have to have the dump button ready for that one. <laughs> Kansas is, so uh, 12 of 18 is 66.7%, basically 67%. Kansas on the season, as bad as it's been, 678 so technically last night they actually had a worse game than their season average, and even then their season average is 258th in the country in free throw percentage. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm, I don't have much left to say on the free throws other than what are you doing in practice? I mean, and, and again, the, it does, the opponent doesn't matter. It, they're free throws. It doesn't matter who you're going up against. You should be able to make them, so ridiculous. Yeah. But actually, the biggest negative I had from the game was rebounding. You got out-rebounded by uh, Eastern Illinois by three rebounds, and they also out-rebounded you on the offensive glass as well. They had, I think they had 13 offensive rebounds, which is just way too many when you've got a guy like Hunter Dickinson. And I, oh boy, I'm I'm very close to hitting the, the alarm button on this situation with the fact that Hunter Dickinson is a rebounding machine, and yet somehow nobody else seems to have any rebounding prowess. And it doesn't, it doesn't really make any sense. Kevin McCuller was a really quality rebounder last year for KU. I don't know what's changed there. And KJ Adams, as much as we've talked about it, well, oh, he should be a better rebounder. Now that he's not a five man, it, it's not happening. What, I don't even know how to. I can't even really wrap my head around why that's the case, but it's not good, man. You can't rebounding cannot be a one man thing. I mean, you need other guys to step up and rebound. And KJ Adams is a physical specimen. He's incredible. He's an incredible athlete. You would think that he should be able to get rebounds. I don't know why it's not happening. I don't know what what the issue is there, but. It can't be just Hunter Dickinson, man. It's it, it that's a really that's a recipe for disaster, certainly. If you're if you're gonna give up a lot of second chance points, you're not gonna force a lot of turnovers. Uh, that the rebounding thing was really disheartening for me. Because like, listen, I understand the shooting situation and, and, and why it is a big concern, but uh, it's to me, you can win games where you're not shooting the ball well. I don't know that you're gonna be able to win games if you're giving up fifteen offensive rebounds and you're not forcing a lot of turnovers either. Right. I don't know that you're gonna be able to win games doing that. You can still win games well, so shooting poorly. Too, right? I mean, we for instance, last year, the, the game that Kansas played Duke in the Champions Classic, they got murdered on the glass, right? Kyle Filipowski had a billion rebounds, and they had a billion offensive rebounds. But yeah. you hit three, like Grady Dick hit some threes for you late, right? Yeah. Uh, you go back to like the 2018 team with Devontae Graham. That team would lose offensive rebounds all the time, but they would get hot from three, okay? And then you have the flip side of it where it's like, well, KU maybe has had other teams where they haven't been as dominant from three-point range. Like, maybe you think of the 2011-2012 team, which that team ended up being proficient from three-point range. They didn't take, like, a, a bunch of them necessarily, but they didn't have, like, a ton of knockdown shooters, but they were just able to work dominance on the boards because you had Jeff Withy and the Morris Twins and all this stuff. Like, yeah. you have to be good at least one of those two, and right now they're not. Yeah, either. dude, the, the rebounding situation is, uh, I think it's more concerning for me. I just I just don't understand how. No, I mean, how... it's the one that Bill Self was more concerned with last night in the post. Yeah, and I think I think he should be. I think he definitely should be. Uh, I, just, I just don't, again, I just don't understand how that's happening because 
you have a guy like KJ Adams who it, I mean if if I if my life was on the line and I needed a rebound and somebody to, to out physical a guy for rebound, I'd probably would pick KJ Adams. I mean he's he's literally the most physical guy on the floor ninety nine percent of the time. So what where, what's the issue with him? You know, Kevin McCullough, like I said, last season was a quality rebounder. Now not anymore. Is it is it because he's focusing more on trying to be a scorer and maybe that's detracting from his rebounding? I don't know. But it's just it's just it's not working right now. It's not there right now. And you can't you can't rebound. I mean, dude, that's like rule number one of coaches is that you, you need to rebound as a team. You can't have one guy be your rebounder, right? It's not going to work. So, uh, yeah, that was my real concern because you're playing an Eastern Illinois team that was extremely undersized, and yet somehow they're able to out, out-scrap you, outwork you basically on the boards besides Hunter Dickinson. That is a very serious problem. Yes. And, like, the the defense, that was, I, I'll say this, like, the defensive rebounding numbers actually were, were solid for KU coming into last night. So that's the one that was concerning for last night. But it's the lack of offensive rebounds that's been a consistent all season long. Like, nobody's getting offensive rebounds. Like, that that's something that's uh, problematic. Hunter did have five offensive rebounds last night, but yeah. the rest of the team has Well, four, and, and so. I think that kind of makes sense that they're struggling on the offensive glass because if Hunter Dickinson's the guy taking the shots all the time, that means he's probably not in position to get it, yeah. a rebound, right? Well, and if nobody way, else is rebounding, then there you go. Back to the shooting stuff. Since the second game of the season, so since they, they went bonkers in the first two games of the season, uh, 28% from three-point range over the last five. Or yeah. wait, yeah, five. Five games. So basically, they had their five exhibition games between Puerto Rico and Illinois and Fort Hay State, and their last five games that they're a 28 or 29% three-point shooting team, and then they just had two outlier games. Yeah, that is scary. And because to your I, point, like there was a stretch there in the first half where it was either Hunter Dickinson kicking it out because he got doubled, or it was Dewan Harris finding an open guy, or Kevin McCuller finding an open guy. And there were like there was uh, a time where in like maybe a couple minute span, Kansas had like four wide open corner threes, which are typically the easiest three to make. And they're wide open. You're not going to make every wide open three. It can't happen. But your wide open ones, you got to make. I don't know what half of them. Something yeah, at like least that. forty I don't know to fifty percent. Yeah, yeah, sure. And they missed all of them. They missed all of them. Like, those are the ones that – I I don't even know what to say because it's not one of those things where it's just like, you know, like rebounding, like grab the ball. It's like just make the shot. It's easier <laughs> said than done. Winning teams make shots. But, like, I just don't know if they have enough shooting talent. I, yeah. I don't know. There's still a lot and, of time. And, again, I, I get the shooting issues, and, and it's definitely an issue. But, again, from my perspective, in Big 12 play, I mean, we've seen KU do it in the past. You can easily win games in the Big 12 without necessarily being great from beyond the three-point line. I don't think you're going to be able to win very many big Big 12 games against quality opponents if you're giving up a high percentage of offensive rebounds and you can't box out and you can't, you know, you're giving up a lot of second chance points. That to me is the thing where it's like that will lose you games. Mm-hmm. Shooting can lose you games too, but you can also overcome that. I don't know how many times you can overcome giving up that many offensive rebounds to an opponent. Yeah, I don't know either. That's that's very well put. Okay, so those are the biggest negatives from the game. What is the biggest neutral from the game? Mm, uh do you think a good neutral here would be the bench? Yes, they were. I think that's good. Pretty. They were like kind of fine. They gave you more in this game than they've given you in a majority of the games you've played so far. Yeah, maybe not every. Like this was. But they weren't great. Obviously, no, no. Like like Johnny Furphy, six minutes, three rebounds, and in, in or I'm sorry, six points, three rebounds in 14 minutes. Like, but he went one of four, so it's like okay, that was okay. Yeah. Uh, Jamari McDowell played eight minutes, grabbed three rebounds. He's fine defensively. Came in in some key moments, but didn't really score much. Timberlake Dude. finally hit two shots and yeah. had three rebounds. But he also airballed his first attempt. He did, and also he struggled defensively, and that's why Bill Self said he didn't play in the second half. Like, um, dude, who's the yeah. idiot that said Jamari McDowell should play 25 minutes? <laughs> that guy's stupid. I mean, what an idiot. 
that that, that was the most like <laughs> I don't know that 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 last night was the most Bill Self. You're trying to figure out the bench. You feel like you're starting to have it figured out, and then it's just complete U-turn of all time last night. Jamari McDowell goes from playing yeah. 27 against Tennessee to playing eight minutes last night. And then, obviously, because of the nature of the game, you didn't get a chance to even bring your starters out because it was no. a one-point game with five minutes left. Yeah. Yeah, so that would be a good one. Honestly, I would say Dewan Harris, for me, was uh, the biggest neutral of the game last Like, nine assists. Yeah, it's really one of the things where right? watching the game, you felt like he wasn't really playing very well, but in the box score, looked, I mean, besides the one point, obviously, but sure. he's going to do that, okay? You just uh, have to yeah. accept that. And you would like him to be more aggressive, but yeah, 1.04, like, that's not great. Nine assists is good, and nine assists to three turnovers. Yeah, maybe you would like a little less turnovers, but still, like, three to one assist to turnover rate is actually pretty good. He still had two steals and a block, but also there were a couple plays I noticed where he was, like, the ball was on the opposite side of the court, and he was kind of in the middle of the court. And he was watching the ball, and they threw it to his corner, and he jumped up trying to get the steal instead of going to defend his guy, and it led to a wide open three that they hit. That happened two or three times in the half. So, like, I didn't think it was best defensive game either. But I, I again, it's like Dewan Harris is still very impactful in positive ways. Oh, I just for I sure. Think, I guess neutral on yeah. that one. Yeah, and there's no real quantifiable box score stat for this, but I always the thing that I always like to look for from Dewan Harris is. I just basically try to watch and and see how control how in control of the game he is, right? Because I think for a player like Dewan Harris, if you're going to be a guy who's a pass first point guard and is a great defender, I think one of the other attributes you need to have, especially on the offensive end, is you need to be the one, basically the maestro dictating. You need to be the one dictating the flow of the offense and in control of the offense. And and, and beyond that, you can do that in such a way to to be kind of in control of the entire tempo of the game. I talked about this in the Kentucky game, right? I didn't really see that from him against Eastern Illinois, which, you know, Eastern Illinois obviously is a, a much lower quality opponent, so you would expect him to, to take over in that way, and it just didn't really happen. So that was a negative for me personally. Again, there's not really any way to quantify that or any way to be like point to any definitive thing and be like, oh, see, here, that's that's how I know, you know, but mm-hmm. it's just from watching him. You can just kind of tell because there are, you can definitely tell that in games where he does have that control, it's very obvious that it's like, Dewan Harris is owning this game. He is literally dog walking this entire game. And then there's games like this, Elliott's Illinois game, where it's just everything's kind of just, you know, cobbled together and it's not that way. What was your KU play of the game? Mm, KU play of the game. I think probably the uh, half court pass to KJ for the dunk, right? That was a that was a pretty cool play. I mean, first of all, just to circle back to Dewan Harris, I know we just kind of talked negative on him, but what what kind of guy even sees that? Even like sees that as an option, as a possibility, yeah. and then KJ to go up and dunk it. And obviously, on a night where you know the the UDK did a great tribute and they had everything for for KJ's mom, pretty special moment. I'd say it was fifty nine fifty eight with five to go, and Hunter Dickinson at an and one. That would certainly be up there. Yeah. Um, and then also, this is kind of what put it away. You were up sixty six to sixty one with uh, about a minute forty to go. I thought this was Kevin McCuller, but I guess it was Dewan Harris had the steal. And then eventually it got to the hands of K.J. Adams, who then got the assist to Kevin McCuller. And McCuller had a dunk to make it 68-61 off the turnover. Yeah. And that kind of just, you know, put it away. Yeah. Yeah. So th- those would be the ones I would go to. I'm guessing a lot of KU fans like me had the thought process of, like, as the game progressed of, we're not we're, we're not going to lose, are we? Like, are we, are we sure? And then you're right. That play with Kevin McCuller was kind of the exhale moment of, Okay, there's like a minute left. Everything's fine. 
by the way, almost assist gate part two last night. Um, so there was a Did he almost get robbed on assist again. Yeah, there was a game earlier this year uh, where his over under for assists it ended up. He was I think the over under was like five and a half. He ended up being listed at five by one side, but like on the KU official play by play, he had like eight, so it didn't register. Um, this one I put a bet on him alt assists eight plus assists, mm. and the book he finished with nine counted it as a loss. I had to reach out to support. Wow, and get it corrected. Wow. So what is going on there? Why do we have assist gate with the Dwan Harris assists on the betting sites? <laughs> I don't know what's going on with that. Wow, yeah, that's crazy. All right, he's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. That's our KU basketball takeaways. Let's get some Bill Self postgame audio here. His takeaways from KU's narrow win over Eastern Illinois coming up next on RCST with KLWN, depending on it. Thanks for listening to the Best of RCST podcast. And a reminder, you can catch our show Monday through Friday from 3 to 6 live on KLWN in Lawrence, 101.7 FM, 1320 AM, or anywhere you're online at klwn.com or the KLWN app. Thanks for listening.